Father, we do pray that our lives would be consecrated to you, and may that be obvious in the way in which we sing, but not only sing, but listen to your word as it is read and preached today. Lord, may your word go deep into us, may it mold us and make us as servants for you and your son, Jesus Christ. May your spirit change us. This is a prayer we pray for every one of us, including those who may not know you. We ask that you would regenerate their heart now, cause them to understand and know the gospel, and compel them to repent and obey the command to follow after Christ in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is always a very real blessing to be with you today. We consider it an immense privilege to gather for worship and fellowship and also to open our Bibles for study. As Spencer mentioned, it is Communion Sunday. We're going to do it a little differently with a big fellowship. And uh, it's going to be sort of like a controlled explosion, like bringing down a skyscraper. And hopefully the mess won't get too big. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. And today we begin a part of the book that can best be described as the application of chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You remember this from last week? Peter said, be notably good. Keep your conduct in this world among the unbelievers, among Gentiles, honorable. How should we do that, Peter? Give us some examples. But Peter, starting in verse 13, says, first of all, be a good citizen. We're going to look at today. And in, beginning in verse 18, be a good employee. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, be a good spouse, which would lead to being a good parent. 90% of parenting issues stem from marriage issues. You may not even know it. Be a good spouse. Then in 8 to 12, be a good church member. Chapter 3, 8 to 12, be a good church member. You could add chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 19, all of chapter 4, be a good sufferer, uh, but that's such a large section, I think it warrants its own division. So be a good citizen, employee, spouse, and church member. That pretty sums up our lives, doesn't it? Each section will give us a brief description how we can accomplish this, and of course today is be a good citizen. What is it to be a notable honorable member of our society over which a government rules. Some of you, upon seeing my sermon title, Submit to the Government for the Lord's Sake, your hackles were raised. You thought, I will submit to no man, but that's not a biblical attitude. I'm almost quoting word for word what Peter says here. Don't kill the messenger. The idea that we should submit to government is found early in the Bible. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, there is this allowance for capital punishment. Whosoever shed man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. And so from the earliest days of this world, God allowed for a person or group of people to, to rule in such a way, to govern in such a way that justice in a society is established. Proverbs chapter 24, I believe it's verse 21, says, "'My son, fear the Lord and the King.'" Ecclesiastes 8, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. 
In fact, the whole testimony of Scripture tells us that authority, governance, rule, societal order, these are not bad things to be shunned by Christians simply because we're a part of an eternal or a spiritual kingdom. We are to embrace them as God's sovereign and prudential, providential rule of the world. You get to the New Testament, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Titus chapter 3, Spencer preached this a few weeks ago. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Paul said to another one of his disciples, Timothy, he should offer prayers for kings and all who are in authority. It's interesting, there's two groups of four kinds of people that met with Jesus, Peter, and Paul. You look at these two groups of people, a sort of opposite ends of the societal spectrum. One group are fishermen. Four different times, fishermen came and met with either one of these three men. These four fishermen came, and then the other group were the four centurions. These are men who are doing the bidding of a government. And we could say a wicked government, a vile government, a pagan government. And they never were condemned by Jesus, Peter, or Paul. They, they never were told, you need to give up. You're at the bottom of society, or you're in the government, and you kill for a living. You need to quit what you're doing. They never spat on the order of society. They never were told you shouldn't serve wicked and perverse governments. As a matter of fact, when you come to, across a godly person in the Bible who encounters government or government officials, what you see is respect for government. Jesus himself, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, had respect as he spoke with Pontius Pilate. He showed respect to Herod, who martyred his own cousin. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar, which possibly led to Nebuchadnezzar in some way. We don't know exactly how, but in some way, Nebuchadnezzar had some sort of turning to Yahweh. And that has to be a result of Daniel's respect that he showed Nebuchadnezzar. When it comes to government, we sort of have this love-hate relationship, don't we? There are moments that we have that we're so proud to be an American. Supreme patriotism rises up in our hearts. We're proud to be a part of an amazing country. I know that uh, this happens, or it used to happen. I don't think it's happening as much anymore, but when the Olympics would come on and we would shout in our couches at home, USA, USA. I remember when I was in officer school, we, one of the things we did is we had this giant flag we had to hoist for colors. It took 130 of us to hold this flag, so big a flag it was, and we held this flag as it was, it was being hoisted smartly, and one of our classmates was reciting loudly Old Glory. It brought a tear to my eye. Maybe you've been at a football game or some other sporting event and you're sitting in a stadium and those jets come one inch over the top of the stadium and you just want to stand up and say, USA. There's also times when you think about our country that you're a little ashamed or embarrassed, right? There are times you wish you were from a country that no one cares about or knows about and it seems sort of peaceful. That used to be Canada. No one wants to live there anymore, but <laughs> used to be we'd think, yeah, maybe I should be a Canadian. We think sometimes we're a little embarrassed about what's going on in our country. I read a statement this week. There's an old 
liberal pastor from the turn of last century named Edward Everett Hale. He was asked one time, Pastor, do you pray for the Senate? He said, no, I look at the Senate and pray for our country. Bob Hope, some of you probably heard Bob Hope say this in person. I only heard it after the fact. Bob Hope was in D.C. and someone asked him, uh, Mr. Hope, do you like being in Washington, D.C.? He said, I love going to D.C., if only to be close to my money. <laughs> we have this love-hate relationship with the government. Sometimes we're very endeared to our country, to our government, to what's happening. Sometimes we're ashamed, we're embarrassed, we're frustrated. Well, how do we live an honorable life in a society that is wicked and sometimes led by extremely wicked rulers? And let me just add at this juncture, don't fool yourself and think that our rulers today are somehow more wicked than they ever have been. Pilate and the Caesars were vile, wicked, horrible, murderous individuals. And I don't think we ought to try to compare who was more wicked. They all seem to be perverse and wicked. The church flourished most probably in the times that government was the most wicked and hateful and persecuting. And Peter and Paul and Jesus don't say, submit to government only when they're really nice to Christians, or only when you think they're doing the right thing, or only when your politicians that you like are in power. Only submit then. Now, do we have a, a right? Is it biblical to rebel or to refuse to obey the government? Well, you know what time that is. There are moments when the government commands you to do something that God prohibits or prohibits you to, to do, doing something that God commands. And you know at that point what you ought to do when you ought to go underground. This is Daniel chapter 1, right? This is Acts chapter 5. We obey God rather than man. You can't tell us to stop preaching. This is what God has told us to do. So there are times. Sometimes those times are gray. Sometimes you find Christians who differ with one another of what we should be rebelling against. There was a time in the early church history where there was a big debate about what to do about a group of people known as the Lapsi. These are people when there was great persecution and the government was forcing people, when they pay their taxes, to also either give money or offer a sacrifice to honor Caesar. It was essentially a, a form of pagan worship. And many Christians said no, and they either died or went underground, disappeared, had to flee, become exiles because of it. Other Christians said, you know, I, I just don't feel like I have to do that. I'm not worshiping Caesar. This is just part of the program. I'll, I'll pay the money, extra money, or I'll bring the animal and have them sacrifice it. But... I'm not worshiping Caesar in my heart. So there's a big debate after the persecution passed. There was a big debate. Debate. What do we do with all these people who, who in their minds lapsed and denied Christ before men? Do we admit them back into the church? Are there rules with which we ought to let them back into the church? Or should we send them away forever? Should we discipline them? So Christians sometimes debate where that rebellion should take place. How much should we re re refuse to do? I remember... In the early months of COVID, it seemed like every week the government was coming out with a new declaration, and sometimes that declaration conflicted with other declarations, and Christians were a lot of times very confused. We tried to, some of you remember here at the church, we tried to make a place 
for all the different convictions. If you felt like you needed to be home, you could be there. If you felt like you needed to be out on the lanai watching spaciously, you could be there. If you felt like you wanted to wear a mask, you could wear a mask. If you felt like you didn't have to wear a mask and you wanted to be here, you could be here as well. We tried to leave room for that spectrum of rebellion. But, but everyone feels like sometimes the government is telling us to do something maybe God doesn't want us to do. Now, we did have the benefit, some of you remember, in Hawaii, the, the government didn't pay too much attention to churches. A lot of times the declarations would not even mention how churches ought to obey this, so we were a little more free, I think, than in some states where they were opening up bars and closing churches. We were able to continue to worship. So we do have a, a right, and sometimes that right is a little blurry for Christians, and we differ. We have to show respect to one another, but we do have a right. There are instances, and we see it in the Bible, where we are allowed to turn against government. We can still submit to government. We can still honor government, but there are times when ultimately submitting to God causes us to rebel against government. Is it right when we are trying to submit to government and live an honorable life? Is it, is it right, to, right to call out evil in the government? Does submitting to the government prohibit us from calling out evil in the government? No, not at all. We ought to call out evil. Jeremiah and just about every prophet called out evil in the government. We can't forget about John the Baptist who pointed out Herod's incest among other sins. So there's no doubt that we should point out evil in the government. Now, we don't do it by burning down police stations and overturning cars and protesting, destroying buildings and so forth. We're a, a peaceful people. We object. We can call out evil, but we do it with respect and honor. That brings one other question to, the, to our minds. Do we have a right and privilege? Should we get involved in government? Or is the command here to submit to just to be listless, just let the government go the way it will? Should we be involved in government? You know, we have a privilege, no Christian in the Bible, and really no Christian in most of history had. They could never even dream of this idea that the government has invited us to choose who they are and how they govern. Now, how fair that is or how it actually is happening or not is questionable. But there have been times in our country and perhaps other places, even states, where just a few thousand votes would have changed, changed the course of history, would have made society a better place. And so... I think it's the Christian responsibility to, to try to make the world around them a better place and follow up and vote and do the best that they can. But the position of a good citizen is not just listless apathy. There is a way that we can affect good in society and we should take those opportunities. Well, let me read this text and we will jump in. I have seven points today, but don't be too nervous. The first three points are a little more thorough, and you see this as, you, as we'll read it. And then the last four points are literally just a list in the very last verse. And so we'll move through those very, very quickly. Let me read the text, and we'll jump in. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in 13 down to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution... Whether it be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin our look at this passage by reminding us of a story in the Gospel of John. Jesus, uh, John tells a story uh, of Jesus' passion in chapter 19, a story that's not repeated in any of the other Gospels, possibly because John may have been the only apostle that was there watching this. We know that John followed Jesus much closer during the Passion than the rest of the apostles did. I want to give you this account, John 19. You can turn there if you want. It begins in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a, a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, being the crowd, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid, even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, let's think for a few moments about Jesus' words. Jesus was not being angry. He was not hostile or abusive or even recalcitrant to Pilate. His silence, we learn later in John and also in Peter, but even in the other gospel accounts, his silence was not a silence of uh, uh, frustration or rebellion. It was a silence really of submission. He, he wasn't trying to argue with them. He wasn't trying to debate with them. He wasn't trying to refute them or get off the hook. He wasn't fighting against Pilate. He wasn't even fighting against the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the chief priests. Jesus was submitting to the whole process of crucifixion. Now, why was Jesus doing this? Simple. He was submitting himself to God. This was God's will. He knew that he himself, Jesus, was infinitely more powerful than Pilate could ever even dream. He could have called down a myriad of angels who destroyed the entire Roman Empire. But a submission was to God. And he knew God, for such a time as this, had set up in history a series of authorities chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, even Pilate and Herod, to all be where they were to be so that this sovereign plan would be meted out in history. 
Now, these men had volition. They had willpower. They were simply doing what they wanted to do. Here's Pilate. He seems to be most concerned with the political repercussions of what he does up there. He's afraid of the crowd. He's afraid there might be an insurrection. He's afraid what news might get back to the emperor. He's a fearful man. Others had wicked, angry, murderous desires. All these things were true uh, out of their own will. It's not that God was twisting their arm, but it was all part of God's perfect, sovereign plan. God was in complete control of this, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew that God had set this all up to put him in this very place, and he should submit to God's will. His was not to fight the Roman Empire. His was not to fight the Pharisees and scribes. His job was to do the will of Father who sent him. So when Pilate said, I have authority over your life, Jesus said, let me correct you. You have no authority unless God gave it to you. My submission is not ultimately to you. It's to God who put you in this position. My submission to you is because I submit to God. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to debate you. I'm not going to come against you. My submission is a submission to God. You could say it like this. Jesus submitted to Pilate for God's sake. Well, that brings us to point number one. Number one, remember God's sovereign rule. Jesus did not fight the sovereign plan of God, which means he did not fight the rulers. He did not fight the wicked. He did not fight the governments. He did not fight the vile religious leaders of the day. Even when he went to the temple and twice at the beginning and the end of his ministry turned over the tables in the temple, he did not touch one person. He did not hurt one person. He did not seek to overturn any human institution. He did not seek to subvert the Sanhedrin. He did not try to overturn any of the governmental structures that they were in place. He saw this as a vile, uh, uh, a vile execution of wicked people doing what they want to do in the temple, but he did not go up there and try to overturn the government. When Peter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, grabbed his sword and tried to take the head off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and missed and got his ear, remember Jesus says, we're not fighting this way, Peter. Put away your sword. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human powers. And he healed Malchus, and he submitted to this process. He was arrested. You remember what happened? You see this again only in the book of John. Remember what happened when the whole crowd came up to meet Jesus? And they asked which one of them is Jesus. He said, I am, and they all fell down. This shows us he could have defeated them easily with the word of his mouth. They all fell back, dusted themselves off and got back up, and he put his hands behind his back to be arrested. Jesus had the power to defeat them, but that is not his. His was not to defeat the government. His was to submit to God, which means submitting to the government. We ought to be a people who are people who are confident in God's sovereign plan in this universe. That's probably what Peter means when he said, for the Lord's sake, we're supposed to honor and mimic Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be Christ in this earth, which means we don't take up arms against government and fight. We trust God with Jesus who put these men and women in power, even if we think they're vile and horrible, whether they got that position honestly or whether they cheated their way to the top, which would probably describe most authorities for most of history. 
We Christians ought to live in that peace. We're not fighters. We're not rioters. We don't overturn violently and overcome. When Jesus allowed the disciples to have a sword, it's clear that that sword is for self-protection so that they wouldn't be robbed or perhaps even hunting. It wasn't to overthrow government. One sword is enough, Jesus said. Now, this is unbelievably practical right now. In the election year, the emotions are up. It seems like in our country there's a group of people who want to defend that crowd, that mass of people who a couple of summer ago, sort of in every, all these massive city centers were overturning police cars and burning and protesting, and they seem to want to defend those people, and yet at the same time they go against those who are on the other side politically who walked into the Capitol a few months later. And it seems the opposite is true. Those who want to def- defend those who walked into the Capitol seems like they're very much against those who marched and supported and overturned police cars and destroyed buildings. Christians should do neither. We don't protest. We don't fight. We don't destroy. We don't break buildings. We don't light things on fire. I got news for your Nero and Caligula and Julius and Diocletian and Herod and Pilate. These are awful, vile, wicked leaders. You think they got their jobs fairly? And here is Jesus submitting to them. And, and in Peter's day, the emperor telling everyone they ought to worship him. And yet, while that's happening, Peter says, Submit to the emperor, honor the emperor. Verse 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Are there exceptions? Of course, I mentioned times when disobedience is warranted, particularly when our governments demand what we shouldn't do, demand that we essentially disobey God. But even in that rebellion, that's a far cry from taking up arms to destroy government. We trust God. We understand there are exceptions. We understand these are the rules. That this is not the rule. Again, those exceptions can be personal, and Christians may differ sometimes. We ought to be careful with one another and not be too judgmental about these areas. But we submit to the authorities because we trust God's sovereign plan. The rule is we live a quiet and peaceful life. We respect everyone from the president to the clerk at Satellite City Hall. From the governor to the crossing guard, we show honor and respect. We distinguish ourselves as those who are not emotionally controlled by what's happening in the government, constantly bent out of shape about what the governor is doing or what the king is doing or the president Why? Because our default position is that God has put these rulers in place. They do not have any authority unless God had sovereign power over it. God put them in authority, and we know it's for a purpose. Even horribly wicked ones He put in authority. And that authority, in at least a small part, is to bring some level of uh, order to society. We don't fill our hearts with agitation and rebellion and hatred We rest in the sovereign plan of God. The outflow of that peace and that rest is we respect authorities. 
Now look at the next verse, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Number two, an honorable life silences critics. Here's my observation in the last 30 or 40 years. There are two groups of people who gain power and influence and money by dividing our country into two. The first group that gains by dividing our country is the media. I'm sure there's exceptions. There's got to be plenty of Christian and godly reporters out there, journalists. But by and large, the media gains when they divide our country. How do they gain? Well, they've learned that if they can produce outrage, people will come back to their station or their publication like addicts. If every day you constantly push this outrage, can you believe? Can you believe these people believe this? Can you believe these senators or this king or this president or this whatever is doing this? Can you believe that half of our country support this person or half our country don't support this person? Can you believe? It's outrageous. And they've they figured out this formula. If you just watch the news, have you ever noticed when you watch the news, they don't even give you a report like you would hear a report of some facts. Now oh, the weather's going to be this way. They report the weather and the, and the sports much different than they report news. News is always breathless. Today, on Washington, up on Capitol Hill, so-and-so did this. Can you believe? I mean, it's just this urgent outrage. And they make money. They create addicts. Some of you, if you're honest with yourself, you might be an addict. You might have been checking Twitter right before the service started. And when you go home, you might go and turn on the news station. And it just runs in the background. Outrage, constant hatred. They get money. They grow in wealth and influence the more they divide our country. That's the media. Why would you fill your heart and mind with, with people, people's ideas and words that are full of so much hate and outrage? We're fools to do that. Don't be an addict to the media. They have figured it out. And let me tell you, you're a fool to think that they're not making money. That's their whole purpose, is to make money. And they're making money by creating a country full of addicts to their outrage. Who's the other group of people? Well, it's politicians, of course. For the most part, our politicians, because there are no term limits, for, especially on the national level, they are on a lifelong campaign trail. And they know the longer they serve, the longer they're in that position, the richer and more powerful they get. I don't know how it happens, but strangely enough, these people get richer and richer, even on a pretty modest salary. Just in a few years, they become multimillionaires, all of them. It's gotten so divisive and so horrible in our country that they've come to a point, thanks to the media and thanks to others who propose this division, they, they realize that even if they try to work with the other side, that they would be deemed that they've compromised their values. 
And so they refused to even work with people. They refused to even govern like they should. They refused to even vote on a stinking budget. Why? Because it looks like they're going to be working with the other side. They lived their entire life demonizing half of the country. This is almost every politician. I'm sure there's some exclusions, some people that are the exception. But year after year, decade after decade, they build a resume of hating the other side, demonizing and being angry with and being victorious over the other side. Now, how is this cycle going to be broken? Well, I'm sure there's some sort of legal way that it could happen. They could come up with term limits, for one. Maybe get rid of lobbyists. Maybe make it to where you don't get more wealth and power in that position, but it's actually a humble and a hard place to serve. But how does it stop on a personal level? How do we end the madness personally? How do we stand out as Christians, as those who are as honorable? Here it is. Don't fill your heart with hatred. If you're constantly ingesting news, ingesting politicians and pundits, what they say about one another, you will, you will learn to hate. I've even seen it in churches. There will be hatred between members of the same church who worship the same Christ, have the same faith, same baptism, same God. They hate each other because they've so filled their minds with hatred. Heart and word and attitudes of hatred. And that's not the life we are to live. What's going to silence the critics is that we're not sucked into the cycle of hatred. Jesus' silence was a silence of calm assurance. He honored everybody. He did not get sucked into the argument of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Pilate didn't know what to do with this guy. He clearly was innocent. And even when people may come to you and accuse you and assault you and criticize you, if you're a calm, peaceful, kind, caring person who does not fill their mind and heart with hate, we're going to stand out and we will silence the critics. No one will be able to say, honestly, we Christians stir up hatred and ill will. That we Christians want to stir people up and cause the destruction of society. They won't know that. No one should be able to say that I can't stand being around that Christian because he's so frustrated politically. No, what should they, they should see in us as a settled, grateful, honorable life, and that will silence any criticism as we respect all. Number three, you belong to God, not government. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, what does this mean, we are free? It means we submit to government as a free people. We have been ransomed by the blood of Christ from the slavery and death and futility of this world. Our submission to government is not because we need government or we want government or we long for these people and want the money or want the protection or whatever, we know that God is in control. We submit to them out of freedom. We submit to them out of a heart that says, we see that this is the way God has organized things, not because we ultimately submit to them, but because we ultimately submit to God. We live as servants 
of God. God doesn't need a society that is Christian for his kingdom to go forward. Did you know that? There's a big move right now, kind of a return to some old ideas back at the beginning of our country, but there's a big move right now to of Christian nationalism, for Christians to take over the, the country again and oust everybody and maybe initiate the return of Christ. This is sort of an extreme view of post-millennialism. That's not what Jesus, or Peter here, excuse me, is encouraging. Take it over. Rule it. Get them out of office. Get yourselves in. That's how my kingdom is going to go forward. If Christians just take control... No. Jesus never encouraged that. Peter does not encourage that. And under the most vile regimes, Christianity flourished, even today. Tertullian, the blood of the martyr, the seed of the church, some of the, the time that the church spread most quickly was during those early days of great persecution. So we don't submit to government because we need it. We submit to government because we are free. God has freed us, and we can live in that freedom, submitting to the government because God has made us free. We don't submit to them because of who they are or what they give us. We submit to them because we are free people, freed by God himself. And we have the freedom, he points out, to do what's right. I understand you're free, Peter says, ultimately free from this world. I understand we have a different kingdom, a different God, a different king. We're not ultimately living an earthly life. We're not living as citizens of an earthly kingdom, ultimately speaking. So submit out of your freedom to submit. You submit out of your joy in God's sovereignty and the fact that you belong to God, not to this government. I was telling a couple of folks uh, this week, a few years ago, when uh, Pastor Ryan and I were in China, we uh, went up into a valley to uh, look, to find, we were looking for little groups of uh, Jirong Tibetans and we, we saw this valley and we went up into this valley and there was a village up in there and we were just kind of looking around trying to engage with some of the people and, and uh, before we knew it there was a couple of police cars there, a couple of unmarked police cars, some Communist Party officials were there and they said, uh, why don't you uh, Westerners hop back in your car and follow us back to the police station. So we went back to the police station. They put us in this little holding area. I don't want to call it a cell, but they put us in a little area. And uh, we'd be fools to try to run from there. Got our passports, made us fill out our stuff, made copies, all this stuff. What they were concerned about is that we were some of these Westerners who are big into the Free Tibet movement. And there are a number of Westerners that are big on trying to get China to, to release its grip of Tibet, its ownership of Tibet. And and this has stirred a number of people up. In fact, in, in Tibet, in the Tibetan areas of China, a number of priests and monks have actually burned themselves to death publicly as, an, as a, uh, an act against the government. And they were hoping that we weren't stirring this up. Well, our interpreter was very quick to uh, explain to uh, the officials there, hey, we're not here to do anything but submit to you. Our objective. We, we have a different kingdom. We have a different country. We're not here to cause upheaval. We submit to you out of the freedom that we have. We're not going to cause prob any problems. We're not here to stir anybody up. We have a different country. We're here for a different purpose. We're not here to oppose you. We submit to you freely. We are fine uh, conceding to whatever you tell us to do. And they said, you know, well, you ought to go stay in such and such a hotel and visit such and such a site. 
And we said, yes, sir, that's exactly what we'll do. We do that freely. Now, we could have said, now, we're Americans. We have a different government. We can, do, we can go wherever we want. No, that would have gotten us in more trouble. No, we submitted out of our freedom to submit. We lived honorably. We honored them. So it's out of freedom that we submit to our government. Ultimately, we answer to a different king. Not because we submit to them, not because we trust the government or we believe in it or we hope in it or we sort of set our hopes on the good American ideal that it's somehow perfect. No, we submit to it because it honors God and God is who we ultimately submit to. All right, let's wrap this up. The last four points, as I said, are really a message of application. The first three points are more deep and detailed, doctrine, truth, theology, God and government, Christian. The next four commands are really one sentence. How do we carry this out? And they're stated sort of in rapid succession, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now let's just take these very quickly. Honor everyone. Everyone you come in contact with, you should so show honor. That is a hard thing to do. I had a situation this very week with uh, someone in the Navy who was my superior and was doing things and saying things and they were false and it was trying to reflect badly on me and it's hard to show honor and kindness and warmth even in that situation. Honor everyone. Be, be someone who realizes that every human being is created in the image of God and they, they deserve, for that very reason alone, they deserve a level of honor. Love the brotherhood. There should be an overarching love of the church. We ought to be, all of us, churchmen. What does that mean? That the center of our, the centerpiece of our spiritual and our fellowship life is the church, is the bride of Christ. Christ loves his bride. We ought to love the bride of Christ. I was talking to a gentleman a few months ago about how in, uh, in a man's life, if he finds some level, level of success, what happens in his late 30s, early 40s, what happens is, is he, he kind of comes to a fork in the road where he can choose career, a growing, expanding career over church. And the more he chooses that career, the more he chooses money and influence, what happens is, is his ability to be a part of the church, to be involved in the church, to enjoy the fellowship and communion of the church grows less and less and less. Of course, one of the greatest examples would be a president of the United States. You get to that point, how can you actually be a healthy member of the church? Now, you can't do that. I think you could some years ago. I think of John Adams. You know, John Adams was the, an elder at his little Presbyterian church while he was president. You can't do that anymore. There are certain businesses. You get to a certain point of success, you get so busy, you get so influential, you get to a point in your career as an officer, as an enlisted person, you get to a point where you're too busy. And so it reminds us that we ought to love the brotherhood. This is something we ought to cherish. One of the reasons we're doing our, our thing today, Communion Sunday and being together, is because we want to... We want to cherish and emphasize and engender a love of one another, loving the brotherhood. Uh, fear God. We talked about this earlier in our study of 1 Peter. Remember the definition of fear God? Fear, the fear of God is the constant sense of God's presence, power, and knowledge, and then the loving response of worship and obedience. We fear God. We live in the fear of God. And then finally, 
honor government leaders. I say that because we don't have an emperor. But you could stamp that verse or the last of that verse on your mind before you respond on your Twitter or Facebook. Is this honorable? Am I honoring the government when I say this? Is this honorable? I have to confess, sometimes they make it easy for us to mock them. Sometimes it seems like they're working hard to get us to make fun of all the frivolous, silly things that they do. But we need to ask that question. Is this something that is honorable? Is this honoring the government? Just have that biblical phrase in your mind, honor the emperor. All right, let's pray that God would give us the grace and the joy and desire for this to lead this kind of peaceful, honorable life. Father, we thank you for what you've given us in your word. We pray that we would live this. We know that Christians execute this differently. Help us to show grace and kindness to one another as we find different places and different uh, expressions of this. I know there are those that will be a little different than me, and they'll probably have their very good reasons. We pray that we would all honor one another. We would love ultimately Christ. From that, love the brotherhood, and from that, trust in God. Believe that He has sovereignly put us in this place, in this time, with this government. We pray that we would honor you by honoring and submitting to government, just as Jesus did. We pray, Lord, again, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, they would understand what Jesus accomplished by being crucified, by submitting himself to the will that you have for him, that is to die on the cross for our sin. Give them the faith and desire to repent and follow after Jesus. All of us need your help. We need the faith and repentance. There's areas in our lives that we, even reading these passages, must repent of. Help us do that, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me. I'm going to read directly Jude 24 and 25 as our benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.